Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're talking about anxiety with psychologist and researcher Daniel P. Keating. His recent book is entitled, Born Anxious, The Lifelong Impact of Early Life Adversity and How to Break the Cycle. And the book addresses several questions, such as, why are some people always so anxious and stressed, and how did anxiety become a social epidemic? Dr. Keating has been researching these and other questions for much of his career, and he's here today to help us understand how stress in utero and during the first year of life affects our gene expression and our proneness to anxiety. And so I'd like to introduce my guest. Dr. Daniel Keating is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and received his PhD at Johns Hopkins. He's conducted research at leading North American universities at Berlin's Max Planck Institute and with the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, where he was a fellow for two decades and led the program in human development. He focuses on developmental differences, cognitive, social, and emotional, and in physical and mental health, and he resides in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dr. Keating, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Dr. Keating, I'd like to start with the basics. I, I want you to tell us about what is anxiety, because I'm not sure that we all really understand what it is and how it's different from, say, stress or nerves or fear. Could you explain? Sure. So um, I would make a distinction between anxiety as a specific clinical diagnosis uh, that would come up in a variety of different ways that one would say this is a clinical manifestation of anxiety. And then another is the more general or colloquial sense of anxiety which overlaps quite a bit with feelings of being overstressed, overwhelmed, agitated, uh, you know, sort of aroused in a, in, a, uh, in a way that you feel like you need to do something. So I, they, they are obviously related sorts of things. Uh, my particular focus in this book is to talk more about the, the what we would think of as the, as the second kind of more broader uh, and more general meaning of that term, which many of us experience, uh, all of us experience some level of stress and anxiety at some point in our lives, at many multiple points in our lives. Uh, some individuals have a much harder time dealing with that. And for individuals, that's because of a, um, a process by which their stress system becomes dysregulated and has lots of consequences. So that is more the meaning of what I'm talking about here. Uh, it is connected in a variety of ways. Um, most individuals who have a clinical level of anxiety uh, would probably also have a dysregulated stress system, but that's not the only pathway to having a dysregulated stress system. And we're going to get into the mechanisms, the biological mechanisms in a moment because because that's uh, central to your book, but I just want to make clear for our, our listeners that even though you are describing the sort of everyday, day-to-day anxiety that any of us can feel, you do make it the distinction in the book that there are some people who experience more of that kind of anxiety or just are more prone to it than others. 
And that yeah. there's a lot that can be understood <clears throat> about why some people are more anxious than others, more anxious than, than the average person. Is that correct? Yes, that is right. And, and so um, within that sort of general sense of, of, of dealing with stress, how do we handle stress? There is obviously a, a kind of a continuum, right? So individuals, sometimes there are some individuals who feel very untroubled and are rarely uh, feeling uh, stress. In fact, it can be at a, uh, you know, at, at a at too low a level, if you will, at being able to get um, sufficiently activated to do what needs to be done. The majority of people fall into a middle range within that distribution where they have an active stress system, which is critical for our survival, has a long evolutionary history and is vitally important to us. And then there are some individuals who fall towards the other end of the curve where they're feeling overstressed and overwhelmed and agitated much of the time, some cases virtually all of the time. So it's that particular group which would include a variety of people who may have clinical manifestations of internalizing disorders or externalizing disorders. But what I'm focusing on is not so much the clinical aspect of that, uh, that dimension from, uh, you know, along that stress response uh, 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 pattern, but more those individuals who are showing elevated levels enough that it has a negative impact on their lives. And, and what are, just so we can all be clear, because I feel like we, get used to living with this kind of anxiety that you're talking about. And it's very easy to not, not treat it as important to think that this is just how life is. What are, from what you know, the long-term consequences of this kind of chronic anxiety? Yeah, so if, if, so if a chronic condition and, and the individual has difficulty dealing with stressful situations, situations that others might respond to, but then quickly, you know, kind of calm down and, and chill out, so to speak. Uh, those individuals who are carrying that level of stress, it has a number of negative consequences. It has negative consequences, particularly in, in childhood and adolescence in the areas of relationships and behavior, either, you know, on the fight or flight dimension, going to extremes in either one, being uh, angry and lashing out, having a hair trigger response, or being uh, overwhelmed by the situation sufficiently to withdraw from social interactions to not want to participate. Those behavioral patterns obviously have very negative consequences for developing relationships, learning how to be in relationships, learning how to regulate ourselves in a way that enable us to get things or accomplish things that we uh, want to um, that we want to accomplish. So there's a variety of behavioral manifestations and a felt emotion during those circumstances that are unpleasant to the individual at the time that they happen. Going forward from that, carrying that stress load affects our physiology in some fundamental ways. The most primary one is that if an individual is having that kind of overactive uh, stress response, they're carrying a lot of excess cortisol in their system. That's one of the primary uh, hormones that is released when we have a high stress response. There are others, but that's a primary one. Uh, that excess cortisol, because you can't get rid of it very easily, it doesn't come back to baseline very quickly, has a lot of toxic effects. And what we know is that a lifetime of that kind of stress shows up across the board in many different kinds of physical health issues. Uh, 
cardiovascular issues, intestinal issues, uh, virtually all organs organs uh, are, are affected by that. And in fact, that kind of lifetime of stress is associated with decreased longevity. We die earlier from it. So it, it extends from kind of earlier on where it's mainly behavioral and emotional, um, but then fairly soon begins by late adolescence, early adulthood, and then certainly through into middle and late adulthood has negative consequences in terms of our physical health and our longevity. So, so there's good reason to be paying attention to this and to there's good reason to try to get it under control because we can live our entire lives not realizing that we're anxious per se, yet suffering from all sorts of secondary consequences, health issues, digestive issues, uh, interpersonal issues, um, if I'm hearing you right. I, right. Uh, in your book, you bring, you bring this to life by telling us about your early experiences with David and with another boy named Jason. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us about them and how they influenced your decision to devote your career to understanding the Jasons and the Davids of the world. Sure. So um, my, my earliest experience was, was um, the, the, with, uh, with David, the names changed, of course, but with David, who um, was someone who I knew a little bit when I was, this would have been in, in, in fourth grade. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of seemed like in some ways a fairly, you know, uh, everyday kind of, of kid, not a close friend of mine by any means. For a variety of reasons that are hard to fathom at the moment, but I was in a parochial school at that time, and and um, the nun who was teaching us was required to be away in the afternoon for for other reasons, uh, and so I was asked to be in charge of the classroom, and essentially we were given seat work to do, and I was there to sort of try to help maintain order, and and I was fairly good with school, so to help people out who had struggles. So David was one of those students in in our group. What I discovered is that he was quite a handful to deal with. I hadn't quite noticed this because I was kind of on the periphery of all this and, and the authority figures took care of it. But he had uh, uh, this kind of uh, almost Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing, that the least thing going off the rails, and I suspect he was probably stressed out because the circumstances were unusual, but the least kind of thing going off the rails could send him into a, quite a tizzy and just you know being angry at people and lashing out and, 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 and that sort of thing. Or at other times, would just completely shut down, didn't do anything, would just sit there and do nothing, right? Um, and so this struck me as odd. I mean, he, he was not from a, you know, we were all in this suburban parochial school from, you know, upwardly striving, you know, uh, parents who were had come from working class families. We were all kind of upwardly striving middle class, education-focused families and so forth. Um, so he was not different in any of those ways, but he just was not able to, um, the lingo that I didn't have then that I would know now, he wasn't able to regulate his behavior. He wasn't able to regulate um, his his emotions. He wasn't able to stay focused on things. So this struck me as odd. I mean, he was clearly not uh, uh, lacking in intelligence. He was, you know, he was, if you talk to him in one of his non-stress days, he was quite articulate and normal and, 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 and you know, okay to get along with. So, so that sort of struck me as unusual at that time, different from what I had experienced. And then uh, Jason was a boy when I was in high school. I did. Um, uh, we ran a, a summer literacy camp. My high school ran a summer literacy camp in the um, in downtown Baltimore, in one of the more economically distressed areas. And and we got to know the kids there fairly well. And Jason was was an interesting kid. He was clearly very bright. Um, 
and you know, kind of could could carry on really interesting conversations. But in a sense, he showed the same pattern. If things didn't go quite right or things were not quite right, he would show that alternating pattern as well, lashing out, being angry, uh, you know, coming on rather unexpectedly in that way um, and, and so forth. Uh, and in other times, he just would not, in a sense, be there, right? He would withdraw. I mean, now, again, with the lingo that I have, he, he clearly, you know, sort of alternated between externalizing and internalizing difficulties with regulating his own behavior. Those patterns, you know, sort of, I was trying to figure out, now, neither of that, both of them struggled with schoolwork, uh, one from an advantaged background, one from a disadvantaged background, um, but it didn't seem to be associated with how, you know, their, their, their thinking capabilities, at least as I understood that at the time. My, my work then went into how do you understand individual differences? I started out looking at cognitive and intellectual patterns to understand what might be going on there, but found that that didn't quite cover all the stuff that I think was going on. And partly because of becoming involved with this Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, realized that it would be helpful to see this in a much broader and interdisciplinary way. So you're saying that at some point you realized it's not it's not just that some kids are smarter than others, or it's not just that some kids have certain traits or certain abilities that other kids don't. And that explains why, you know, some of them are having problems regulating themselves, calming themselves down under stress uh, compared to others. I, I'm wondering what then, where did you start looking and how did you, because your book focuses on the time in the womb and the first year of life really as a critical period in which these uh, differences are laid down. So how how did you come to know where to look and and where to find answers? Yeah, so that's kind of the science story that that uh, that's at the beginning of the book, and and it started with um, uh, some questions around our our program. There um, started with a question that had been generated by a different program called Population Health, and their question was, "Why are some people healthy and others not?" And it was primarily epidemiologists, physicians. Uh, and so forth. And as people began to look at that, it seemed to be clear that there were there was a lot of, um, you know, in the statistician's term, unexplained variants. There were a lot of things we knew that could affect health. But even after you took account of most of them, there was an awful lot that was unexplained. And so when you after you partialed out things like lifestyle, you know, are people smoking or not or uh, overeating or not or active or not, after you partialed out um, access to health care. And one of the important studies here was done in the UK where there was no real differential in access to health care because it had universal um, uh, coverage. Um, and so a variety of studies were showing that, you know, even after you, all of those things that you could think of looking at, there wasn't an obvious uh, kind of solution to that. What the kind of the first step was recognizing, and, and some of my colleagues in our human development program began looking at this pretty intensively. In following longitudinal cohorts, following the same people over a lifetime, and by that time, there had been a number of such studies. There were more in the UK than in the US, but, but other countries are catching up. But essentially where you would find out that, well, you know what? Um, we know that your current socioeconomic status, where you stand in the social hierarchy at the moment, is associated with your health outcomes. But lo and behold, what your 
family of origins social status was accounted for almost as much of the variance, right? Even if you were doing well now, if you came from a, a background where there was a higher probability of early life stress, early life adversity, um, that that in fact increased the possibility of having across the board, it didn't focus on any one, not just heart disease and, you know, not just metabolic or diabetes. It, it, it crossed virtually all of the all of the available um, indices of, of, of health and morbidity and eventual mortality. So that was kind of the first step. And then the next step would say, okay, well, if that's true, why would that be true? Why would something that would happen very early in life uh, associate itself and our lingo came to be, how does it get under the skin? How would that cause you know, heart disease in your 50s or 60s, right? What the heck is going on? And so that, in a sense, started our digging around. And we had some folks who were doing animal models with monkeys and rodents, and we had a variety of things that we were looking at there. And and really, it was kind of the the, the stress um, uh, story came from that looking at what goes on in early life, but then also following that and hear a lot of Bruce McEwen's work. Rockefeller uh, in New York was, um, uh, you know, kind of the leader in this field showing that if you have excess stress, if you have um, what are people now often talk about as toxic levels of stress over a lifetime, that can in fact lead to this undifferentiated wide range uh, of, of health problems. So you're saying for our listeners who, who don't know statistics, I, I just want to make sure. sure to summarize what you're saying because it's an important point. You found that there were differences between people who seemed just across the board more prone to anxiety and its various consequences than other people and that the differences between those two groups didn't just have to do with socioeconomic status and didn't even just have to do with the level of stress that they, the individuals, experienced, but also how much stress, are you saying their caregivers or their families had experienced as well? Right. So so just carrying that story a little bit further. Yes, that is correct. And essentially what what we then started looking for is what might be the actual mechanism that that leads to this and there are probably multiple mechanisms but one of the striking parts of of what we uh, discovered working with you know our team discovered um was that uh fairly early on as early as during pregnancy if the mom is extremely highly stressed or in the first year of life, if for whatever reasons stress on the parents is a is a major uh, piece of it, um, that that uh, can create a change in how the stress system responds to the world. And the specific mechanism that Michael Meany at McGill brought to us, uh, this is early in their work where it was just getting underway uh, back in the early 2000s, that that essentially what happens is that you can have what's called an epigenetic modification. And basically what that means is that these experiences of stress prenatally or early in life, stress on the newborn or stress on the fetus, changes the way particular genes function. Um, That is, it doesn't change the gene, the DNA in the gene remains the same, but it changes what that gene does. It changes what that genes, uh, how that gene does its work. And in this particular one that I focus on in the book, because it's been studied the most and is directly related to the stress story, is gene that's associated with that 
stress response system, what we call the HPA axis. And what that gene's job is to do is to play a key role in telling the stress system after it's gotten underway and it's doing what it needs to do. We all have to have that. The job of this particular gene is to say, okay, it's cool. It's a feedback loop and it says, we're chill. Everything is fine. You can shut this system down now because we've got enough of this going on. That turnoff valve, if you will, gets broken. And it doesn't tell the system to turn off, which means that for those individuals, this stress system is running, you know, if not 24-7, certainly far more than it is for most people. And so we were able to make the connection with the, with the actual – one of the key actual underlying biological mechanisms that leads to this pattern in the population of overstressed individuals who then have this wealth of health problems, if you want to think of it that way. These many different health problems that are associated with that being highly stressed. It's not the only pathway to it, but it is – uh, in my view, and I think the research is bearing it out, a very important one. And the stress system you're referring to is the fight or flight response? Correct. Correct. And that, this is the HPA axis is the generator of that, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, hypothalamus being in the brain. It gets a signal and says, aha, some threat, some problem is arising, some challenge uh, to us. We need to deal with that. It runs through the pituitary, which sends off a hormonal signal to the uh, adrenal gland, which, I mean, the instant response is for adrenaline, but quickly behind it comes the cortisol response, which is what allows us to generate lots more energy than we would typically have when we've got a threat situation or a challenge situation, and also is helpful in a variety of ways in terms of focusing our attention, uh, focusing our mental efforts on the problem at hand. It's kind of narrows narrows down the band of what we're paying attention to to really focus on the stress. And, of course, the survival value of that across many eons is obvious, right? If, right. You, if you see a tiger in the bush, you want to start running before you do a deep analysis of the situation. Right, but I, I guess what you discovered is that, or what we know, is that once you've outrun the tiger and it's safe, your there should be a way for your, your system to know, okay, we're safe now, we could shut down the stress system and I guess you've discovered that there are certain people, the, the Jasons and the Davids of the world, who, because of their early life or pre-life experiences, it's kind of like their the, their system is constantly on because the gene that is in charge of turning that system on and off is in, is impacted in such a way that that the system never gets turned off. Am I following that correctly? That is correct. Um, I mean, never is maybe a little too strong because eventually the system can exhaust itself or other systems come in, but it stays up at that very high level uh, much longer than it would be with a well-functioning or, uh, you know, sort of stress system. I should add, I, I'm using these terms like well-functioning and, and dysregulated and so forth in a way that says, how is it that we're dealing with kind of what we see as everyday life for most people in relatively well-off societies, relatively wealthful, uh, wealthy, relatively peaceful societies? The evolutionary story that goes along with this, which, you know, we're still working on, many people are, um, is essentially that another way of thinking about this epigenetic change is the shorthand is it's, it's a way that the genes can listen to the environment. They pick up environmental 
signals alter the way that they function with a goal, in many cases, of trying to enhance survivability. So imagine that you have an organism whose mother is in a very stressful situation, right? Highly stressed situation. If an animal, maybe new predators have come into the territory, whatever it might be, right? Uh, they produce a lot of cortisol. Uh, if it gets to a certain level, it can get through the, the placental barrier. That circulating cortisol is a signal to the fetus, you're about to enter a very dangerous world. What we need to do is make sure that you're on alert 24-7. Or similarly, if the newborn is unable to get soothed, is unable for whatever reasons the parents aren't able to deliver that external regulatory uh, support, right, helping them to soothe down and so forth, for whatever reason, that is perceived, the infant is distressed, that doesn't get soothed in a suitable way or in a suitable time frame, again, the signal to, because they're now producing their own cortisol, the signal to their system is, hey, wait a second, this must be a very dangerous world, you'd better uh, stay alert. And as my colleague said, when we first heard about this kind of uh, story from, from Michael Meany, uh, his summary uh, was, oh, so the signal to the, to the fetus or the infant is, uh, you know, this is a very dis difficult, dangerous situation you're getting born into, so, or that you've just been born into. And so you need to learn how to live fast, live hard, because you're probably going to die young. So it may aid survival in highly dangerous situations, but at a cost of the organism in the long term. Right, because because the person is always in survival mode, is is always in some ways worried about survival. You, you know, I, I can imagine that lots of soon-to-be parents are listening to this and wondering, oh my gosh, do I need to do I need to be careful about my stress level uh, during my pregnancy or during my during my partner's pregnancy? And so I want to be clear then about what what when we talk about. Uh, stress and its effect on, on the mother and on the baby in the womb, you know, what counts as the kind of stress that produces this sort of adverse effect? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I wish we had a simple answer to it because what we're really looking at there is, a, in a sense, what's the dose response of maternal or parental stress um, that, that can trigger the this and, and we don't have a clean answer to that. But this, the rules of thumb, I think, are, would be fairly straightforward. The, the first is to recognize, number one, that everybody has stress in their lives, right? We're not saying that you should try to, you know, uh, wrap yourself in cotton batting and, you know, sit around for nine months and do nothing. That is, many people would find that highly <clears throat> stress, right? So people do need to kind of live their lives. But I think the, the and, and that's number one. Number two is to recognize it. it, it in a sense, to try to learn how to read your own body, right? To what extent are you feeling, you know, super tense a lot of the time? To what extent are you feeling uh, this underlying anger or tension or, you know, fear that makes you want to withdraw from things? It, your body signals that. Now, a lot of us become accustomed to our own body and don't tend to listen to our body or read our own body very well, but that's a very important thing to try to do during this period of time. Now, even relatively, you know, moderately high levels of what we might think of as daily hassles are probably not sufficient to trigger this process that we're talking about. But much beyond, beyond that is that if there is this high level of circulating cortisol, for whatever reason, then in fact, that could be the case. So I think that, I mean, what, what uh, some of the more 
uh, forward-looking work in the um, obstetrics and gynecology specialties and to some extent in the primary care providers is to very much encourage women who are expecting to pay attention to what's going on with their body, to be honest about how they're feeling, and for the, them and the people around them to find ways that are productive in terms of helping them to reduce their stress levels during this period of time. Right? Shutting down is not an answer, right? Ignoring it is not an answer, but being attentive to it and seeking support and expecting other people to provide support and flexibility during that period of time is something that uh, that a lot of uh, physicians who are working with expectant moms are really trying to communicate at this point in time. And I think that is crucially important. I, I imagine a lot of people are listening to to this interview and feeling a mix of things perhaps some relief on the one hand from being able to understand oh so this is this is why i'm all, always anxious you know maybe maybe this explains why i felt this way my whole life you know it, it makes sense now right. this is what what your book is about it's the title of your book some people are just born anxious but they might also be feeling, well, I can't, I can't go back into the utero. I can't go back to my first year of life. And does this mean that I'm sort of locked into this mode of living and, and this hypersensitivity for life? Or is there something that the Davids and the Jasons of the world can do or that we can do for the Davids and the Jasons of the world who have been living much of their lives with this heightened anxiety? Yeah, well, the good news here is that, in fact, there is the, a phenomenon of resilience that one can bounce back from early adversity and bounce back even from the the miss, um, you know, the, the alerting of the stress response system to kind of be in an always on, uh, you know, always alert circumstance. And I think that that uh, it takes different forms at different developmental periods, but the but the core principles are very similar across all ages. So. The, the the first major one, the one that research shows has the biggest effect, is the um, is the the uh, uh, effect from strong social connections and strong social support. So one of the things that we know is just at a level that if you have other people who have your back, so to speak, or who are interested in you, there's a behavioral and an interpersonal and a psychological response to that, which makes life easier. So you may have fewer occasions on which that stress is going to get, um, you know, is going to reach a level that it, that it has to trigger. Now, if it's a hair trigger kind of system, it has to get dampened down fairly far, but nevertheless, it's there. The other effect of having good social connections is that when, even when you're not stressed, when things are relatively okay and you're building up, you know, sort of those social connections, those, there are two other key, there are many neurohormones to be interested in, but two that are key here um, are serotonin and oxytocin. And, and, and one is the serotonin is kind of the, the circulating hormone that's the target of um, the, uh, most of the antidepressants. Uh, and oxytocin is what people typically talk about as the love hormone or the trust hormone. It's that surge of positive feeling, particularly in intimate connections uh, between couples or in a you know, mother-child, father-child situation. Those um, get triggered through social interactions. They are actually biological antagonists to cortisol. They take down the cortisol when those are in your system. And so the social connection has both the 
you know, kind of behavioral, emotional, psychological benefit, but also a direct biological benefit. So that's one. Um, and of course, that can take different forms. Soothing a distressed infant who may have this problem takes a lot of effort. We call that super nurturing to deal with that for an adult. They or their you know, family and friends might point out to them, you know that you have this kind of hair trigger response or this withdrawal response. You know, maybe we need to think to help think through what that might be. So that's one part of the resilience story. Another one is that's kind of come online more in the recent years, but major uh, in, uh, you know, uh, movement is around what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And basically what that does, I mean, it's, it's a complicated and very fascinating process we're still learning about. But the primary message here is as much as possible to stay focused on the present circumstances and what you're doing about the present circumstances and just experiencing thing in the present so that you're not primarily focused on resentment or regret about the past. You're not primarily focused about anxiety or fear of the future. That's not to say that we don't pay attention to our past and learn lessons from it or that we don't do appropriate planning for the future, uh, but rather that we um, uh, you know, try to stay in those sorts of things. And there are a variety, as, as you know, there are a variety of therapies that deal with this. There are a variety of educational efforts that try to enhance mindfulness. There are even, uh, you know, apps that try to help people, uh, you know, kind of get in that area. The advantage of mindfulness is not directly the biological antagonist um, that we see in oxytocin or serotonin, but it does have the ability for us to take more conscious control of our HPA axis, of our stress response system, that we learn how to work around that system. It never kind of is going to eliminate it or recalibrate it, but it is creating a situation where we are more in control of when that system is going to get triggered. And then the third one, which is in some ways the easiest to do, but also the hardest to make ourselves do is physical exercise. Physical exercise is the wonderful benefit of burning cortisol because it is fight or flight, right? So if you're doing either of those things, that's the physical activity. It uses up a lot of that excess cortisol and it has the side benefit that it typically aids our sleep and sleep deficit is one of the biggest risks for maintaining a stress dysregulated state if you have that particular kind of issue. And then the two big ones to avoid, which can make everything much worse, but nevertheless resolve or combat the immediate effects of feeling anxious, stressed, overwhelmed, agitated. Comfort food has a great way of sopping up cortisol, but it also has a great way of leading to diabetes and all sorts of other obesity and other sorts of problems. And then various kinds of psychoactive substances, alcohol or other drugs, also give us immediate relief, but with very long-term negative health consequences. So if somebody engages in meditation and in mindfulness, seeks social support, gets better sleep, does exercise, then can those, can those people who fall into the more anxious category, can they over time reduce that hair trigger response, reduce the hypersensitivity of their stress system? Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think that the, so far as we know, there's no way to actually go in there and, uh, you know, repair the HPA axis itself. But it does create the, the ability to, in a sense, change the habit patterns that lead to that hair trigger response. So that in effect, what you're doing is taking yourself out of a, putting yourself from one uh, context where you habitually do those sorts of things and creating a set of habits that work very well to 
minimize, reduce, um, and even you know sort of become the habit that you you become aware of the fact that wait a second, this feels weird. I'm, I'm feeling this this response, and there's no really need for it. And then immediately kind of stop it in midstream, right? And so in a sense, we've got a lot of tools in the toolkit that enable us to do that. You know, at any point in development, some become easier for us as we age. Some are uh, you know sort of we depend on others in early on, particularly in infancy, to help supply that. But yes, absolutely, it is the sort of thing to do. And I think if individuals develop habits, and the good thing here is, of course, whether or not you're stressed this regularly, those things are great to do, right? Have strong social connections, meditating, creating mindfulness circumstances, exercising, avoiding, uh, you know, overeating bad foods and avoiding unwise use of, of psychoactive drugs, alcohol, and others uh, is great for everybody. But for these individuals, yes, that kind of resilience is definitely possible. Right, right. And I, I want to focus on one of the things that is a central piece of your book, which is the effect of social inequality. Because then that opens up a conversation not just about the way that individuals and their individual circumstances affect their likelihood to develop this kind of uh, proneness to dysregulation, but it it tells a story about how at a social level we are setting up certain groups, certain um, segments of our population to almost be, be um, destined for this kind of stress response and this kind of life of anxiety. Can, can you tell us about what you have found regarding social inequality, what, what social inequality is, what you're talking about, and how it affects our anxiety? Right. So, so basically what we have is a situation where uh, this story kind of starts with the basic, like what's called social epidemiology. What do patterns look like? And one of the longstanding patterns is this association between SES, socioeconomic status and health. And that's true for adults. We and others point out that it's also true if you go back to where the people, um, you know, families they came from. So what we've got is this notion that we know that People who are very well off are likely to live longer, be healthier. People at the bottom end of a, a social distribution are more likely to have more health problems, issues, and to be, um, you know, to, to, to live not long. And when they pile up, it's even bigger, right? So you have, you know, sort of the, the differences even within a society like the United States between having all the advantages and none of the advantages can be an average lifespan difference of 10 to 15 years. So this is not trivial. Uh, kinds of things. The other thing that we observed in some of the work that we've done is to say, well, wait a second, this is interesting. Is that true everywhere? And what we find when we do comparisons, let's say across countries, is that we find it's a very different kind of picture. Societies that have high inequality, right? Uh, that is that where individuals who have advantages are way better off on health and other outcomes, developmental outcomes, compared to individuals who are at the other end. Uh, when we look at those countries and compare them where the difference is not as steep, where that ladder is not as steep between the bottom and the top, in those countries, people live longer, um, they, they uh, are, are healthier, and they have a variety of other positive outcomes. So we've done some studies and actually pushed it back and looked at it in adolescence, and you get a very similar picture, right? So adolescence in highly unequal societies, and unfortunately, the U.S. is among the leaders in this, um, have 
they, they report more health problems even as early as adolescence. They're less accomplished in educational uh, performance uh, than, than uh, uh, the inequality of these lower levels of educational performance and health, uh, lower levels of social participation where they're not being engaged in a variety of things. So we start with this, this repetitive story that we find across many different studies, and we're now here primarily comparing wealthy countries. We're not looking at third world countries where just simply having resources to live live is a problem. We're talking about well-off countries, industrialized, uh, well-off um, uh, economies and countries. And so so there's that inequality. Now, one of the things that's important here is that we might all be able to understand intuitively, well, if you don't have anything, right, if you're at the bottom of the social ladder, yeah, that's going to be a big problem. But what we were finding, it's not just at the bottom of the ladder, that you have this kind of what we call a gradient, that if you're in the sort of lower middle class, you're better off than being poor, but you still have those issues. If you're middle class, you're better off, but still have issues. And that gradient is like a ladder. It goes up steeper ladder in some places, shallower ladder in other places, but there's there's always this kind of uh, ladder that's going on. So so what we find is that this, in, the question would be, why would that affect, why would inequality affect people who are in the middle class, who are basically comfortable and so forth? Well, if you've got very steep, and it affects in those countries that have steep inequality, if you have steep inequality, you're probably very much worried about sliding down that ladder if something mm. goes wrong, the steeper it is, Right. So a financial shock like the 2008 recession may seriously worry you or may impact you because you've lost your home or whatever. Or even if you're not worried about yourself, you're probably worried about your kids. So we know that social mobility goes down. So this is the kind of the core thing. And in the process of writing the book, I actually went out and did some additional research because I was intrigued by it of what we're seeing in the U.S. of a very accelerating and worrisome stress epidemic where we've got many more people showing stress related diseases and disorders, according to data from the CDC, than there were 30 years ago. We're also seeing it in people's self-reports. They report feeling more stressed, more anxious, more agitated, more worried, more overwhelmed than they were 30 years ago. And the physiological markers of stress, things that are reflecting our heart function, our kidney function, our liver function, a very interesting study that showed over that same period of time, 30 to 40 years, what we're seeing is that that has raised very sharply. It's raised most for the people at the bottom of SES, but it's raised for everybody up through people at the top of SES. So I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this because it sounds like a really important but subtle point. You're, you're finding then that even if you're middle class and ostensibly not in a situation where you're really dealing with adversity on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's not really a daily part of your life. You have the things that you need that if you are nonetheless a middle, a person who falls into the middle class, but in a society, in a country where there are larger than average disparities between social classes, that you are more prone to this kind of anxiety that we're talking about today than say a middle-class person or middle-class family in a country where the social disparity is is not as large, am I following that correctly? That is, that is correct. And so, um, one of the things that we find, I mean, just you know, take one little fact out. You know, if 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 you want to have the you know, on average, the chance of living as long as a uh, 
someone in the middle of the distribution in, say, Sweden. If you're in the U.S., you'd be better off on SES to be around the 70th to 75th percentile. You're going to have to be much higher up the scale to have that sort of similar outcome. And I think the issue here is when it's steep inequality, it may not be an everyday worry, but it is a background continuing worry, right? right? So every time that something happens, you're worried about what's going to happen. And if you've got kids, you're worried about what's going to happen to them, right? The hyper-competitiveness to get into good colleges is an example of a middle-class worry that's nevertheless a real worry. I mean, remember, uh, you know, we need to think about the fact that your stress system doesn't know where the stress is coming from. So if you're just in your mind deeply worried about something, even without an external stressor on you, your system's going to respond the same, right? So we can imagine or ruminate about worries that are going to have the same physiological effect. And the more that we're in circumstances where that rumination, that worry, that concern is a live issue, it's going to keep coming up for us over and over again. And it may particularly be coming up for expectant moms and parents of newborns because they're very worried about what their child is going to experience throughout life. They themselves may be feeling economic pressure in a way that they had not really been thinking about that much. So let's say the mom decides to take advantage of maternity leave, which is quite weak in this country, and 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 uh, that re- Uses income, there all of a sudden is a whole new worry, a whole new set of worries that comes along with this. The other thing that we looked at is not just that inequality outcome, the disparities in outcomes. We looked at what might some of the contributors be, and there are a number, but the two big ones that stood out, at least empirically in our work and others' work, is income inequality, right? How how much of a share of the income do people in the middle and lower get out of the total amount of, of income that wealth that's being generated in the society. That's a huge issue growing bigger by the day, as most everybody knows, I'm sure. The second is what is our investment in human development? And what we found is that over, uh, you know, in things like education, social safety nets, uh, early childhood supports and so forth, parental leave, when we looked at those things and comparing, say, the 30 wealthiest countries around, what we find is that those two things make a difference and that the countries from about the mid 80s to the 2010 on average, when we looked at them, those countries that allowed income inequality to get higher faster and those countries that put in austerity processes that they decreased their social safety net or social investment, investment in human development, those countries showed bigger increases in those disparities than countries that tried to maintain a level of, of inco- less, less income inequality and maintaining their investments in human development outcomes. These findings have, it goes without saying, have really important political implications and sociological implications. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are feeling like I am right now, which is, wow, this this kind of makes sense of of about. It helps me understand why so many of us, even though we're we might have job security and we, we have a steady income and we ostensibly have all the things we need. We're wondering, but then why do we feel so stressed all the time? Why are we always so worried? Um, and, and why is it so hard to feel secure today in, in, in society, to feel secure financially, even when one has a job, even when one is working, and even when you know one has a retirement account? It's, it's, it's so hard to, to feel like one is going to be okay. And I think you're right with with my friends who are soon to be parents or just became parents, that, that anxiety is palpable, even, even though you look at their lives and it seems like they have 
all the things that they need. Um, do you do you talk about this with with the people who come into your lab, and and do you have uh, thoughts about what kind of political implications this has? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a central concern, and 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 uh, absolutely, and I think that the. I mean, one of the, the better recommendations I got was from a, a research colleague of mine in, in, at, at the university who said that, you know, I just wanted to pass along to you that, um, that you know, some of the biggest I've mentioned, it, like on my Facebook page and stuff and, and, and call it people that I know who are completely not researchers, you know, not psychologists out of, you know, just in everyday life and business or whatever they might be doing, uh, who have said – this was really very helpful for them to understand why they felt so anxious all the time, right? It just doesn't, they weren't really thinking about it, but this helped them to understand why, even though it looks on the surface that everything is, you know, calm, that that's not the case, right? I mean, it's like the duck who's paddling like crazy to just stay on course, right? I'm worried about this. And if you're not worried about it for yourself, you've got whatever cushions that you might have in terms of maintaining, you know, housing security, food security, et cetera, et cetera. You may very well be worried about it for your kids because we can look ahead and see, hey, wait a second. If this tre- these trends that we kind of feel keep going, we could be in deep trouble. They could be in deep trouble finding their way in the world. And so, and so as parents, we worry about what their future is. And when we have situations that exacerbate our feelings of insecurity and make things worse, then obviously that continues to ramp it up. So would it be – fair to say that in your book you're taking what we know about the impact of early life adversity in in, in the ways that we've historically thought about it uh, you know poverty living in a an area with high crime rates and such take taking what we know about that that those sorts of settings really do set up someone for a life of anxiety and extending them to help us make sense of why um Anxiety is so is such an epidemic, even outside, even beyond the confines of these um, adverse situations that people live in. How even uh, people in in ostensibly less adverse situations can can be prone to the same type of epidemic. Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely, because you don't, you know, people don't live in a bubble, right? I mean, we do live somewhat bubbles, but but we're aware of things that are helping everybody. So let's say that, I mean, let's take a current situation, right? Even if you have good employer-based health insurance, right, and you're not really worried about that particular thing, you're reading the papers and you're thinking, my goodness, what would I be like if I were one of the, you know, however many, 20 million people who have health insurance but are going to lose it, right, Right. and creating all sorts of problems for them. Well, I'm going to feel that and I'm going to think, wait a second, how firm is my employer's commitment to this? What if they make it possible for people – for employers to be less provide less coverage, right? Well, you know, so so in a sense, it, it's in the air, if you will. I mean, it's not not literal air, but I mean, it kind of it creates a culture of worry, a culture of anxiety, uh, and when things get pushed to the notion that hey, everybody's got to be on their own, you take care of yourself, and everybody else is going to have to do the same. Swim, you know, float your own boat. Don't bother me. That is felt by everyone as a kind of a cultural imperative that is pretty scary as opposed to being in a, in a situation as a healthcare being one, but even say early childhood um, education and uh, child development services and a variety of other things 
good retraining programs if you get laid off, if you're a laborer, and those sorts of things, that that, that, that is, is a culture that says, no, what, these are citizenship rights. These are not just you know, charity, what we're giving to people, everybody's going to be taking care of everybody else. So you've got these extremes of kind of, you know, this this culture of competition, individualism, everybody on their own versus, uh, you know, things where people have become used to thinking of these things as a part of the, uh, you know, fabric of their society and regard them as kind of rights that you should have, which then makes everybody in that society be less stressed out. And because we stress is itself contagious, the more stress there is, the more people feel stressed. And then when I talk about it as a cycle in the book, in the subtitle of the book, more stressed people means more people who are probably going to wind up with dysregulated stress systems because of this early methylation process from early adversity, early life stress, which means there are more people who are not dealing with stress well, as well as having more stressors. So that's a kind of a vicious cycle that I think we need to confront both at the individual level, but also to figure out how to confront it at the societal level. Dr. Keating, your your book addresses so much and far more than we can pro- probably cover in one interview. But who who did you who do you think you wrote the book for? Do you think you wrote this more for therapists and researchers, or or for everyday people? It was definitely for everyday people. It was definitely I, I actually had to work fairly hard not to keep my research colleagues in mind because uh, every time I would write something, would try to summarize in a clear way that anybody could understand what was going on around a scientific issue or the epidemiology or whatever it is. I would immediately, because I mean, journal writing is what I've done for my whole career. I keep thinking, well, wait a second, you need to qualify that statement 10 different ways, right? I realized that's not going to work. And, and fortunately, I had some good editors to work with who essentially said, look, this is this is something, if you want it to have a story that has the impact you want it to have, it needs to be written in a way that the average reader can pick it up and understand what's going on. And you're just going to have to live without all those nuances. Now, I drew, of course, enormously on the great work that my colleagues and researchers, you know, research colleagues had done. And I convened a number of of folks, um, you know, using connections where I had some salons for therapists in the area who would share their sense of what I was talking about and did it make sense to them and so forth. And 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 throughout the book, I borrowed some of those stories to kind of illustrate this in a meaningful way. And I do provide some at the end of each of the developmental chapters, some resources to go to. But it wasn't specifically intended as self-help. I would hope that researchers and therapists would find it interesting, but my real target audience was the general public to try to understand this really important story that's affecting all of us and, and and that I think we really need to think about how to how to handle on the various problems that we are we are confronting. Well, I think that you achieved your goal because the book is is very readable but also very compelling and it tells a very very important story. So, I am very grateful that that you made the effort and that you put your findings and experience into this book. We're almost out of time. Before we go, want to tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Yeah. So, so I think that, I mean, part of what I'm working on is, is continuing to try to, to tell the story, get the book out there in as many places as possible and sort of, you know, uh, doing things like, uh, you know, interviews and podcasts, but also putting some things in, in popular locations, you know, on, on websites and so forth. Quiet Revolution, Susan Cain's website ran an excerpt and so forth. So, so I'm trying to get the story out as much as possible. That's a big part of what my time is at 
at the moment. Another uh, uh, sort of on the research end, I do have a very couple of very active research programs that are underway that do take a lot of time. I'm looking at uh, we have a grant to look at adolescent behavior and specifically looking at the brain patterns that are, are related to adolescent health risk behavior with using neuroimaging as well as large survey data to try to do that. And we're moving forward with that work. Another work that just got underway is really more closely connected to the book, which is a part of a national network uh, funded by um, contributions uh, to health outcomes, looking specifically at prenatal circumstances. A lot of them are biomedical, but one of them is specifically maternal stress and uh, during pregnancy and looking at the outcomes of that and looking, I, we expect to be able to look at some of the epigenetic pathways of doing that. That work is just getting underway, funded in last fall. So we're working on that. That's a national network of researchers that are focused on on many of those questions. Um, and then, you know, sort of the, the thinking about, well, what's the story that needs to come next? And I'm, 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 I'm grappling with this at the moment. I mean, in some ways, because a lot of the response has been, what can we do about these sorts of things, is thinking about collaborating with some clinicians and teachers for kind of everyday practical solutions of what you can do day to day that would help kids who are showing this pattern wherever it comes from, you know, whatever, whatever the source is. In addition to, to um, that, and, and that would be a kind of an obvious flow through from this. I'm also interested in pursuing the story about how we're, what kinds of societies are we creating that really shape our own evolution going forward? Are we going to create, you know, harsher, more coarse, more difficult societies, which then gets into our skin, into our bodies, and gets communicated across generations. And, and, and thinking then about that bigger philosophical question about how do we create our own future biological evolution. So I'm toying between those two. I hope eventually do both of them. I expect I may do this, you know, with some colleagues who a self-help book first, uh, practical guide, workbook kind of thing, and then move on to the bigger question. Man, it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy, but but those also sound like very exciting projects. Um, for our listeners, the book, again, is entitled Born Anxious, The Lifelong Impact of Early Life Adversity and How to Break the Cycle uh, by our guest today, Daniel P. Keating. Dr. Keating, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Same here. Take care. Bye now. This is Eugenio Duarte in New York, your host for New Books in Psychology. I really hope that you've enjoyed the interview that you just listened to, and I also hope that you'll keep letting me know what you're reading and who you might like to hear on the show next. To send me a message, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact. Until next time, have a great week.